Office Hours Live is brought to you by Arroya, the ultimate cultivation platform. Unlock the power of crop steering through our state-of-the-art sensors and software. Repeat successful runs and scale faster than ever before. Schedule a demo today at Arroya.io. All right, it's 420 on Thursday. That means it's time for Office Hours, your source for free cannabis cultivation education. My name is Keisha. I am your co-moderator. Mandy, how's it going? Hey there, Keisha. It's going well. We're here for episode 53. Dang, look at us. You'll know we're also going live over on YouTube. So make sure if you're here or with your if you're over there with us, you send us your questions and I'll make sure I get those to the team. Also, if you're active on social media, make sure you're following us on all the platforms. So we're on Instagram, TikTok, YouTube, LinkedIn, and Social Club. But we got y'all's cultivation questions in this week. So I'm going to go ahead and throw it back over to you, Keisha. Thank you, Mandy. All right. Anybody who's on with us live today, if you have a question, feel free to type it in the chat at any time. We'll either unmute you if your question gets picked or I can ask for you. Seth and Jason are in the house. How are you guys? I'm doing great. Yeah, it's uh, it didn't snow or rain today. It's a beautiful day here in the Northwest and uh, happy to be here. Yeah, no, totally. Uh, Bay Area's monsoon season has ended for the time being. So it's really exciting. Sunny day. And uh, I hear word on the street is that you've got some feature updates to walk us through today. Yeah. Yeah, you bet. So I'll get my screen shared here and just show some of the updates in the interface that uh, we've recently launched. I think the first one we're talking about is split graphs. It's for me, probably one of my, my favorite upgrades to the system because it lets us look at more data at once. So I'm going to go ahead and pull it up and give everyone a tour of what split graphs can do. Uh, first off, how you enable split graphs is with the more options or the graph options button. It's a little gear icon up in the top left when you're in the room dashboard. We can go into show split graphs. What that's going to do is it will give us the environment information that can be displayed up here in the top and then the substrate information on the bottom. And just like usual, we can display what types of information we want. So maybe if I want VPD as well on the top, this is kind of my my basic setup when I just start looking at data. That's uh, VPD, relative humidity, temperature of the air, and then water content and um, electrical conductivity for the substrate. This gives kind of a good picture of you know what's going on in the snapshot right now. Uh, you know, another one of my favorite things to do as well is if you are using harvest groups, which always encourage people to track their, their groups is uh, look at the whole harvest group at once and then start zooming into pictures or parts um, of, of that sample. And the, the reason that I like doing that is because it gives you some background on what the plants have been through and, and possibly why they are behaving the way they are at this point. You can zoom in, start to look for anomalies, start calculating your dry backs, get an idea if your EC is stacking uh, the way that you want, all that types of stuff that we're used to. Yeah, I, I just love breaking it out. You know, once I've got Every value that we look at is something that, you know, any cultivator wants to be looking at at some point um, and really should be. Seeing it all in one spot, though, gets a little busy, um, a little hard to pull apart. And this view really simplifies it. It also allows me to do cool things like if I look at just my water content, for instance, I can see, okay, <clears throat> we've got these uh, slight fluctuations in VPD throughout the day. You know, my DHEs kicked on, it looks like, right after they watered. Uh, VPD actually went up and set it down right after watering or right during watering went down right after. But now I can look at, okay, while I've got this lower VPD, maybe I'm seeing a faster rate of dryback or higher VPD rather. And then if I've got lower VPD, maybe that line flattens out when I actually zoom into the, you know, let's say one hour level. And uh, it just makes it a lot easier to pick those things out quickly rather than having to deselect different data types and deselect zones so I can really isolate it. Now I can look at, okay, Here's all of my water averages. There's my VPD. Now I can easily look at VPD and RH compared to water content averages. So it's it's really easy. And, you know, uh, just one more way to simplify this data interpretation for you and save time, ultimately. 
And I think our most all our options here are still available with this split. So if we want to see individual sensor readings, we can turn that on. Obviously, it's going to set of give us a zone average. It'll display the information from all the sensors in the room, given their uh, serial number. Well, you know, one thing that a lot of our clients end up doing is, is renaming that serial number or something else that <laughs> makes sense. Um, you know, possibly a, a zone front, zone um, back type of, of information to also help them. Uh, divulge clues about what they're searching for as far as room consistencies and uh, irrigation system behaviors, all that types of stuff. Uh, also, you can show the, the room averages. So uh, if you've got multiple climate stations in there, sometimes that's really helpful for making HVAC set points on your control systems mm-hmm. um, and or you know trying to make a general irrigation decision for the whole room. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things I really like too is now that we've split the graphs, it also splits the scaling. So I can look at my environmental uh, sensor data all scaled relatively in a small range. Whereas if I have, let's say, you know, 25 to 65% range on my water content scale, but then my VPD scale is very much, you know, zoomed in, it's not going to scale quite as well if I'm displaying all that on one graph. So the split graph really lets us kind of get a, just a much more, I don't want to say accurate because our graphs are always accurate, but the better you are as a grower, everything except water content in EC, your spikes are going to get smaller and smaller and smaller. And as the graph scales in, they'll look bigger and bigger. So it's nice to kind of eliminate some of that, you know, first thing in the morning shock when I see a spike, then I go, oh, okay. Yeah. That's only 0.1. That's not a big deal. Yeah. You know, and I'm glad you said that because it's also another reason that I like to look at the whole harvest group at once is because some of those really big looking changes, um, scale to, you know, some of their actual impact on the room. Obviously if, if we had the perfect room and it was a, you know, straight line plus or minus, uh, 0.2 degrees, uh, those, those 0.2s would be massive jumps in our screen. So <laughs> yeah. definitely something to be aware of is, is take note of the, the auto adjusting scale when you are trying to address, uh, the, the differences that you're seeing in the values coming across here. And yeah, to to me, the most frustrating part is when I talk to people that are worried about it and then we kind of explore that. It's like, hey, this just means you're doing good. (laughs) You know, chill out. I know it's a big bump, but that's a good sign, buddy. Exactly. All right. Well, let's just jump right into the the next one and we can ask or answer some questions that come in live about either of these options after after we preview the other feature that we've just released. So I'm going to jump in here and. Uh, I've got my split graphs going because actually that's kind of just how I look at things all the time now. And what we've done is obviously originally released in Arroyo, we were using um, some substrate sensors uh, with a solar panel on there that's calibrated for sunshine, for natural daylight. Not always were those solar panels uh, very accurate for LEDs, HPS, um, ceramic metal highlight type of spectrums. Um, really the reason we were doing that is just to give more sensors that are indicating are our lights on or lights off. Is there an issue with, um, with some of the control systems that are, are having our lights go on and off. And, uh, what we did a couple of years ago was release that, uh, app GSQ 521 quantum sensor, which is actually a very accurate light sensor for most all spectrums. They've done a, a good job calibrating it for indoor lighting types as, as well as outdoor. And, uh, we had consolidated all those into our light reading. And so recently we've actually split that into to two, uh, light intensity and light indicator. Um, you know, basically feedback from our clients said, Hey, we want it to be easier for us to see the data coming from just the quantum sensor so that we know what our intensity is. And so as our value types, uh, going forward, we'll now have light intensity and light indicator. If your facility does not have a Apogee quantum sensor, then you're not going to have that light intensity option. You'll just have the light indicator. And usually those curves should always track with each other, but we're going to see those, um, obviously the light at the substrate, um, quite a bit lower or that, that solar panel on the climate stations quite a bit lower. So just a, a great way to, you know, validate across the board. Hey, do all of our sensors agree that the lights came on or the lights came off? That's a, a great option for light indicator. And then obviously light intensity is trying to evaluate things like, are we providing enough supplemental lighting in our greenhouses? Uh, are our bulbs degrading? Is uh, our footprint not great for the way we've got our lighting space? Uh, maybe we need to raise or lower those lights. Any of the options that, that affect the top of the canopy. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and separating that out really makes it a lot easier. You know, previously you'd be looking for generally either <clears throat> the sensor named your quantum or PPFD sensor. That's typically what I'd suggest people do. Uh, now you can just with a checkbox split that up and see like, okay, for sure, here's my instantaneous PPD, PPFD at that sensor point. So it makes it just a little bit quicker. And I like this because it's going to encourage people to maybe actually check on that value a lot more. You know, historically, um, especially indoor growers, you know, greenhouse growers, if you're able to have a DLI sensor, like that's pretty cool. Uh, not everyone had them though. And then indoor growers specifically, you know, typically you're trying to get your PPFD dialed in at a certain, you know, plant height away from the, the light. But we're not usually, you know, taking a multi-time a day measurement to, let's say, watch the degradation of our HPS bulbs. You know, you might check at the beginning of the run, in the middle, in the end and say, OK, we're yep, we're seeing a lower a lower light level than we want. But now we can actually look back over time and say, OK, we switched bulb brands. We got to replace these every six months for sure with this brand or, you know, maybe not. Maybe we say, all right, we've got a 10 percent reduction in light intensity. We'll live with that until it hits 25%. I'm not recommending that necessarily, but it allows you to make that choice in a little bit more educated manner because once you lock into that two-month flowering cycle, no one really wants to drag a ladder around and replace light bulbs. And in general, you really want to avoid maintenance, any kind of maintenance over your plants. It's just one more opening for uh, loss and profit. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And if nothing else, it's, uh, you know, kind of safety of mind for consistency, operational consistency. Are our guys forgetting to turn the, the work lights off when they go in and spray? It's, uh, you know, our control system did have a, a reboot and defaulted to on any of those types of things, you know, having full eyes on with, uh, with like the alerts that we have built in here for, for lights on, lights off alerts. You get, get a text when some screw like that happens and, and go investigate why it happened. And that's, you know, what you'll hear from us is always continuous improvement is investigating when things happen, understand why, and then try and uh, prevent some safeguards for that, uh, that type of issue in the future. Um, I, th I think it might be good to just segue a little bit into daily lighting. <coughs> the I know it's something that we probably haven't touched on in, in quite a while with the show here mm -hmm. and maybe be a, a good time to chat about it. So, well, what, what I did up here was I just plotted daily lighting integral. And again, that's going to only be available for people that are utilizing the, the quantum sensor with their Arroyo system and uh, DLI daily lighting integral is really just an integral. So it is the accumulated number of photons that hit a, a specific amount of area over a period of time. Um, for growing, usually that period of time is, is most commonly 24 hours. So if we have our lights on for 12 hours, um, and this is a greenhouse that we're looking at, but if it were indoor, it would usually be a light intensity that's perfectly square. And we'd see our DLI accumulate on a very linear line. And uh, obviously when that lights off, our accumulator or our integral of that doesn't uh, increase anymore. Um, one of the interesting things here is obviously if we were going for 18 hours, we would see uh, an, a light accumulation for a lot longer. Uh, really the most important thing about DLI is understanding that it is the total amount of energy that that's hitting these plants um, as a sampled area, obviously. And that's why we have to have good lighting con uh, uniformity across the the room, but it's the total amount of energy that's hitting these plants that can be utilized for growth. When we look at um, photosynthesis, it's obviously water plus CO2 catalyzed by light. So it is one of the, the three most important impacts in making sure our plants have the energy they need to create sugars and uh, in response, increase the number of cells in the plant. And so when we go from something like veg to flower, obviously we're cutting off, you typically say six hours if we're going from an 18 hour to a 12 hour day. And, and this is really important to think about how, how it impacts the plant. If we, um, if we're going from that transition, we want to make sure the plant's getting this, at least the same amount of energy, uh, as it did when it was in the 18 hour light cycle. So typically that means we're going to have to up our light intensity from the veg to the flower room. Uh, about 33% or about a, about a third roughly um, because that's how much less time that we're providing that light. And we want to make sure the plants have the same amount or maybe even just slightly more energy to continue the metabolism rate that they've uh, been, been building on. Yeah. And you know, part of that too, uh, I'm going to touch on here, like when we're using DLI in cannabis production, you know, 
Jason nailed it there. We're, we're really trying to match up that total amount of energy whenever we make a day length shift, right? Like we don't want to go backwards. And part of that is also, you know, learning now how we can dial our, you know, increasing lighting intensity and in veg to help us achieve our goals when we hit flower. So part of that equation is saying, okay, in flower, I am going to go up in intensity from veg, of course, just to match our DLI. But what, what do I need to be at in veg in order to hit flower and minimize my loss of production time? If I have, you know, some old three, 315 CMHs mounted to the ceiling, eight feet above my plants, and, you know, they're getting 250 PPFD all the way through veg. I'm going to either have to veg in flower or waste production time in flower, hardening off those plants to that increased light intensity. The plants have to produce more chlorophyll. They've got to, you know, be ready to receive all of that uh, light radiation and actually photosynthesize with it. Otherwise, we see, you know, that classic dim in veg. Oh, man, you burned them, right? And that's just that those leaves do not have enough photosynthesis to actually absorb the amount of light intensity they're getting and you get sunburned. Get radiation damage to the le- to the leaves. Yep. So this is really an important factor to consider when you're trying to scale up and really get your crop to perform reliably every time. And also, it's a really great tool to say, okay, I've got this going on in my facility. We have power issues. We have some light fixture issues that we can't fix. How can I deal with that in a way and actually make a decision that I know is going to work, rather than say, oh turn the lights down to 50%. Okay. What, what is 50%? What light are you running? How, how long has that light been on? What kind of intensity are we looking at? We can accurately measure this and not go off of what it's supposed to be, but rather what it is. Yeah. I'm, I'm glad that you, you brought up the, the dimming thing. Uh, a lot of manufacturers, their, their dimming is actually based on the input, uh, uh, wattage, uh, that's going into the bulb and that doesn't always trans, uh, transcribe directly to the light intensity coming out of it based on their, their efficiency at different power levels. So another great thing to kind of document is, all right, when we are at a, a dimmed rate, what is the actual amount of light that that's hitting there? Mm-hmm. Does it actually directly correspond to the percentage on the controller or is it a, a nonlinear relationship between, um, between that? So an example would be if I'm at 50%, um, on the light settings, am I just getting 40% of the actual, um, at, at the, the canopy there? Yeah. And you know, for a fact, we know these, especially HPS bulbs, but also LEDs have a range in, uh, both efficiency of output and the spectrum they put out based on how much power is going in. So rarely is that relationship actually linear. It might be somewhat close, but the better you can map it, the more options you have and the better decision you can make. I mean, that's what it really comes back to is, uh, I mean, you know, 10 years ago, if you looked at a lot of forums online, you'd see an interesting thing where people are comparing different grow light brands and it happens all the time. However, back then, not that many people were walking around with an Apogee being able to actually test the light intensity and the spectrum they're getting out of the lights they ordered. We kind of just trusted what was, you know, advertised. And now go, okay, I don't care what the manufacturer says. I want to do the best I can in this system. And part of that is quantifying how much light I actually have available to me. What an amazing overview. And I, what I really appreciate um, about what you guys are talking about is like, there's so many layers and nuances and uh, opportunities to, to gather more data and learn more. So really uh, thank you guys for that. I feel a blog post coming out about lighting. So it's probably long overdue. Um, yeah. If anyone out there has any, new, any questions about these new features, split graphs and light intensity, feel free to drop them in the chat so we can get them answered live. Otherwise, Aurora customers enjoy it. Um, all right, Mandy, I think we got some live questions over on YouTube. Yeah. Yeah, we definitely did. Um, Gabriel wrote in, says, love you, love your show. Thanks for the shout out. Um, hey, do you know what 10% to pull on day 30? And he followed up with uh, some clarification. So I'm used to doing a 90% strip on day one, and now we've changed to a 10% strip on day 30. Can you shed some light? Hmm. Well, I mean, typically I wouldn't quantify a, a, a defoliation or a strip with a percentage of leaves. What I'm looking at is specific morphological features like do I am I looking to strip the plant up you know, the classic lollipop. If you're leaving it for 30 days, I'm guessing the pruning style you're going for is more, uh, what we see in the industry now is, you know, the four pounds per light model. You got one to two pounds of good bud. You got a pound of, uh, 
you know, B grade, what you're putting in your joints and the pound of trim. Uh, a lot of it's going to depend on what your business model is. Do you need to support that, you know, 30% of weight in B grade joint rolling? Because, you know, always go back to it. If you asked me five or six years ago, I wouldn't have thought pre-rolls would be a huge thing in the market, but uh, they are. And it hurts to take your weed that's beautiful jar quality you want to be on the shelf and then wrap it in a paper and have to sell it for cheap just because that's a necessary part of your brand. So that's something to evaluate. And, you know, we've seen a lot of different models. If we go look back at the word schwaz has been around for quite a while. <laughs> that to some people, that means a lollipop. To some people, that means removing every fan leaf on the whole plant. Uh, so, you know, standardizing that's important and looking at what your actual goal is. You know, if you just keep popping leaves, all we're going to do is stress the plant. If that's the only goal, you've got to go into it with some sort of strategy and uh, also be patient, you know. It all goes back to crop registration. If you used to do a 90% strip on day one, and now you only do a 10% strip on day 30, really document those results. And, you know, I, my go-to with the pruning is take pictures, you know, a picture's worth a thousand words because, uh, man, it'd be great if every single cultivator was on the same, same wavelength in terms of terminology here, but we're not because we're humans and people use different terms to communicate the same thing. That's just reality. Yeah. Kind of just expanding on that, uh, taking pictures is really going to be the best way that you can document this. And if you can save them into your harvest group, you're making everyone's life easier for looking back on runs and understanding how did that impact the growth of the plant? Uh, did we see a major drop in transpiration right after a strip? Uh, so that would be represented by smaller dry, dry backs. Uh, you know, did we end up with a better ratio of a buds to B buds? Is mm -hmm. that acceptable? Was, did it come with a loss in total yield? Uh, all these are things that you kind of have to understand how they fit in your, your processes. Do we uh, want to cut on labor costs and we do have an outlet for, for bee buds and, and maybe trim, then let's reduce our deleafing. Um, mm -hmm. And most importantly, there is usually a balance for what is the best stripping amount for each strain. That's going to be different for certain strains. Obviously the plant needs to capture that light. We were just talking about light. So it's a, a great transition into this. What the leaves are doing is capturing photons for the area of leaf. If we take off too many of those leaves, it's like solar panels. That plant is actually getting less power. Um, and so it kind of comes down to understanding, all right, how can we clean up this plant, make sure it's uh, performing as efficiently as possible, yet not go over the top, stress it, and also reduce it, its ability to, to grow quickly. Yeah. And you know, a big thing too, with defoliation, I find is, uh, it goes right back to the terms. If we just say deleaf, what does that mean to everyone? Some people, it just means pull leaves. To me, if I'm going to tell someone to go deleaf or defoliate, what that means is to pull just fan leaves that are not connected to the base of a bud. So if I'm, you know, doing that week three, anywhere between day 21 and 30 cleanup, depending on the strain, if I'm pulling off just a, a, a leaf at that point down low in the canopy, I'm really just ensuring that the bud that that leaf's attached to <clears throat> is not going to grow to its fullest potential. You know, uh, a good way to think about it is if you're at day 30 and it, that's your first 10% taking, you've already spent a certain amount of time growing those lower buds. So if you're going to do a hard prune, then you've wasted 20 to 30 days growing amount of plant material that you're going to throw away. So that's one thing you want to think about these defoliations. We want to give all of the buds that we want to harvest the maximum amount of time to grow and develop and not waste energy, water, CO2 and nutrients on growing buds that we're going to throw away. You know, whether that day of throwaway happens at day one, day 21 or day 42, if it was day 42, man, you're throwing away some stuff you could potentially blast at a certain point, you know? So always keep that kind of, those kind of things in mind, you know? And another one, keep, if you are a cultivator, it's really good to be exposed to the whole process from the beginning of edge all the way to the end of harvest with the same strains so that you understand how what you do affects the plant in the future. You're not just passing, like if you're in the veg room only, you're not passing off bad habits to the flower, the flower room crew. You know, if you, you could be continuing to do something that you don't understand as a problem, they could be inheriting that problem and not understanding that it's a problem yet trying to deal with that frustration. And 
if you don't communicate and if no one's, you know, looking at the whole picture, you're probably going to go in a lot of circles before you figure it out. Yeah, no one wants to do that. Um, Michael, uh, he actually gave some advice in the chats. Uh, using your light sensors helps with measuring cleanup. Uh, knowing how much energy is reaching each part of your plants lets you decide where to start cutting. Thanks for that. Yeah, we love that. Um, and Gabriel, thanks for your question. We also had another question over on YouTube. Dr. J303 wrote in, I think I went to vegetative bulk, uh, vegetative during bulk. I don't have a sensor, so I think it was too wet. I only got three and a half pounds on four 600 watt LEDs. I need to buy the home grower sensor. Do you have any advice for him? Hmm. <laughs> you know, I, I think this is one of the reasons that our systems become so critical and um cultivation um at scale is just because it makes people have the ability to track as much data as possible and understand insights as far as as what's growing and um it, it helps give enough context to questions like this question that you can go down the the right path rather than trying to take multiple paths and understand which one of the relationships led to the the low yield in this case so I, you know i wish we could pinpoint it down as the best information i can say is as much crop registration as you have time and patience for is what's going to help you determine, you know, was it uh, a switch of crop stirring too quickly? Was it some other type of impact, maybe like a parameter just off? Yeah. I mean, there's, there's a few things to look at. I think Jason nailed it without uh, having some numbers to attach to some of these values. I know 600 watt light helps, but is that LED, is that HPS? Um, what kind of VPD are you able to achieve in the room during full flower? So at week three or four or five, six, can you keep it in a 1.2 to 1.4 range? Um, or is that just not feasible? Are you stuck down at 0.9? Because that could be part of your problem. If you don't have enough transpiration, enough water, even if we have enough light and CO2, if we don't have enough water, we're not going to get the yield. Um, the other thing to think about too, is if you aren't monitoring your moisture content, your soil, uh, it's really easy to have root system problems early on. And, you know, we, we kind of keep hammering on it. The farther you are into any, any growth cycle, whether it's a vegetative or flowering, the less you're going to be able to do to affect that final yield. So stay on top of it is really the best thing you can do. Awesome. Thank you guys for that. And yeah, Dr. J, if you have any more um, clarification, please do write in and I'll get it to the team. But I think that we also have some questions that came in on Instagram this week. So I'm going to throw it back over to Keisha. Thank you, Mandy. Yep. Anybody who's live with us today, be sure to drop your questions in the chat so that Seth and Jason can talk to it. All right. We have a lot of questions in from Instagram. We didn't even get to any of those questions last week. So I'm going to start with this one. Dave Ray wrote in, if my max water content is 48% in one gallon cocoa quick fills, and I'm trying to steer Jen in early flower, how long should I go for drybacks? Any advice there? going to depend a little bit on what the root system looks like when you're starting flower. Um, so, I mean, assuming that you've vegged in, uh, in that, uh, one gallon, so you do have an existing root system, typically, uh, a hard generative type steering would be like a 22 hour dryback. Um, you know, if, if you do see those water contents going too low, you might need to widen your irrigation window to say a four hour irrigation window. And that would be a 20 hour dryback. But, uh, but usually that data is going to give you a pretty good indication right off the bat on what that, uh, that irrigation window needs to be in order to hit the drybacks that you are shooting for ideally. Yeah. I mean, you know, <clears throat> one of the biggest things I'd look at there is, uh, how tall are you flipping your plants in a one gallon pot? I'm going to flip them, you know, 12 to 22 inches, probably pretty darn short so that I can actually have a 22 hour dry back for at least the first week or two. Um, that being said, and I do want to point out, I'm glad you gave us some actual moisture content numbers, whether you're using the Solus or full Arroyo system or something else. That's a great place to actually start with this. Um, my protocol, if I was doing this by hand is to check it before I water in the morning, check it before my P1, see what my low point actually is, check it right after my P1s. And then go check it, you know, if I'm there and I'm really trying to dial this in, I'm going to go check that about every hour and try to start calculating my rate of dryback with the given room conditions. And then I'm going to go check it an hour or two, usually at least two hours before and say, okay, have I've started at 48, am I down at 28 right now? 
right before bedtime or right before the plants go to sleep, lights go off. Uh, okay. Judging by my rate of dry back today, if I look at what happened yesterday, I know that if I don't add this maintenance shot, you know, two hours before lights go off or one hour at the latest, if I know I'm going to over dry without adding that, I'm definitely going to put it on, but it's going to be hard to really dial that timing without continuing to attach numbers throughout the day. Time series data is critical when we're trying to actually really dial these dry back times. Yeah. One of the things that's really nice about the strategy that we present is we've kind of separated EC management and dry back into two different variables, right? When we talk about the dry backs that we're going to uh, ideally achieve, you're always going to be hitting um, your field capacity you know, pretty early in the irrigation cycle. And so we know our drybacks are usually going to be the low point, you know, that, that field capacity minus the low point. Um, if our EC isn't doing what we want, then we're going to start playing with the, the size of those irrigations in order to achieve more or less runoff and let that, that EC either climb up as it accumulates in the substrate or decrease and get closer to our VDC. Yeah. And that's a good point. You know, if we looked at like, uh, let's say a greenhouse situation where that day-to-day dryback is dynamic, right? We've got a little bit different DLI going on. If I look at it and go, okay, I've actually managed to stack up a decent amount as EC in this medium, but Hey, I had 25% more light today than I did yesterday. And my dryback is much steeper. I might start making the decision to put on a maintenance shot on those days so that I don't go too deep on the dryback and spike my EC wildly outside of what it's been doing the previous week or so, let's say. So there's, there's a lot of small decisions to make that come with uh, just monitoring your moisture content throughout the day. Fantastic. You guys, thank you so much. All right. We got more action happening on YouTube. Yeah. Oh man, it's popping over there. We got a bunch of shout outs. Gabriel says, appreciate you guys. Thank you guys for the answers. And holy moly, how do you get such a professional response for free? Oh, we love the shout outs. Um, Craig wrote in, he has a question, and I believe this is about the platform. Can the scale on the right of the graphs have its rules held constant instead of focusing in when parameters get narrower? Currently, it auto adjusts to the data that is being displayed in the zoom window, right? So that's kind of what I was talking about. Sometimes it's nice to zoom out because we'll get a, a little bit, um, a little bit bigger scale on things and understand the the fluctuality. Really, really, it's just kind of our brains tricking us is, is what's going on with that. Um, as as far as to answer the question, we don't currently have a way to to lock that. Um, it is consistent or constantly. Um, adjusted to what's being mapped in the, the screen. Awesome. Thank you guys for that. Um, I guess that's it over on YouTube for now. Uh, Keisha, I will pass it back over to you. Thank you, Mandy. Um, yeah, Mikey wrote a comment here. And Mikey, if you want to unmute yourself to speak to her, feel free, but let me just read it. Cloth pots are getting more popular versus plastic. Cloth leaves you with more evaporation from the substrate in addition to the plant transpiration. Seth, Jason, anything to add to that? Yep. And I hear you on the troubled, the difficult signal, Maggie, all good. <laughs> yes. Get cloth pots. They're awesome. That's how I grew my weed this I love year. Them. Yeah. Uh, one thing I really love about cloth pots personally, especially when we're talking about smaller media, which, you know, if we look back far enough, a lot of us were growing in five, 10 plus gallon pots and now we're down into one or two, uh, root pruning, you know, that, that, cloth pot is constantly air pruning your roots, which means we don't have the inefficiencies that come with long circling roots. Instead, we have short split roots that provide the shortest, most direct pathway for water and nutrients to reach the growing part of the plant. So big benefits there. And it makes our job easier because then, you know, when we tell you to go stick the sensor in there, it just works. You don't have to cut a hole in the pot or anything like that. Yeah. And, you know, it, it kind of just to get it, get at the roots thing, it, it helps provide a aerobic environment for those roots. Um, so anytime that we see some, some brown roots, maybe we are over irrigating, uh, keeping that substrate a little bit too saturated in cloth pots, you're going to have some dynamics that, you know, just from that evaporation on the outside and those roots can more likely seek out an ideal amount of water content. Um, that being said, you know, you might see a slight gradient of, of wetter towards the center of pot. Just make sure you're doing a good job with the placement of your irrigation stakes. Yeah. My biggest advice is if you're using one-time use cloth pots, um, which I do recommend, 
sometimes at the end of the run, they're a little thin and might fall apart when you go to move them out. So, you know, just be prepared for things to get messy. Don't grab the loose part of the bag and start picking them up and throwing them in on a cart or something. You might make a little bit of a mess, but the, a lot of those cloth pots, especially the one time use also tend to be a lot more easily biodegradable. So you're not feeling as bad about throwing away plastic bag pots or feeling like you need to spend a lot of time and money scrubbing pots and making people not want to continue to work at your facility. Compost it, <clears throat> take it home and start growing fruit and veggies in it. Yeah. And, and that's a, that's another thing too, depending on where you're at. Um, and it's definitely harder in more urban environments, but composting has been definitely largely underutilized in this industry. Uh, we're putting out, I mean, most of this excess cocoa or waste cocoa, would, it will need washed at some point, but just like uh, any of your local composting facilities that are taking food waste, long clippings, anything like that and making compost, we're still dealing with an organic compostable product that does have uses after it's been used in cannabis production for sure. And it's already charged with nutrients. Yep. Yeah. I, I can say uh, using excess soil and cocoa from greenhouses made my garden great over the years. <laughs> I didn't really have to go buy any soil. I can tell you that. I just amended a little bit. And a lot of times if you've already got a good composting operation going, you're just adding the perfect bulking substrate to that. You've already got all the nutrients you need. You just need to be patient with it. Making sustainable decisions for that cultivation. I love to hear it. So good. All right. Um, we're going to keep it going with some YouTube, uh, sorry, some Instagram questions here. Slepton Farms submitted a few and they actually were looking for irrigation techniques using soil, vegetative, vegetative and generative, but they submitted a few questions. So any yeah. like kind of overview or thoughts around, you know, crop steering in soil, what, what, what can you guys uh, kind of share with us today on that? Um, you know, the, the general things that we prescribe are typically going to be effective in soil. Uh, you know, one of the biggest questions there to ask is, are we actively feeding it with synthetic nutrients? Um, you know, do we have a, a dissolved salts or, or a liquid fertilizer in our feed? Um, obviously it's going to be a little bit trickier to stack up if you're working on the speed of organic breakdown, uh, of nutrients in the substrate. Yeah. I'm just going to start with the definition of soil. Um, Soil takes years to develop, has distinct horizons, including a top organic layer and lower mineral layers. Uh, if it's in a pot, you're not growing in soil. So let's start there. You're growing in what's called a soilless mix. Uh, when we talk about irrigation strategies concerning crop steering, the biggest factor that we're, one of the, probably the biggest factor we're looking at is, you know, cellular respiration in roots. We're controlling the amount of oxygen we're putting in that root zone by how many shots we're putting on every single day. If you're actually in soil, which means you're in the ground or potentially in a raised bed that's existed for several years and been curated to actually create a soil. Uh, chance in, in the bed, you might have some control, but chances are in the ground, you don't have a lot of control over that dryback rate. Now, moving to a smaller container, if you are in uh, a soilless mix, even if it's organic, it's still a soilless mix. If you're in a two or three gallon pot with a soilless mix, you can actually start to control that dryback and you're dealing with the same uh, strategies we've talked about ad nauseum on here. More shots, more vegetative, less shots, shorter window, more generative. It's, it's the exact same principles. Uh, the thing here is that unless you are supplementing salt nutrients, like Jason was saying, you're not going to have that same kind of EC control. Uh, that being said, that doesn't mean you can't um, utilize some of these same irrigation techniques even if you are in a soilless mix and feeding compost teas every other day to get your nutrition, your EC action is just going to be a little more variable. And on top of that, one thing I want to mention is a lot of soilless growers I've talked to or soilless mix growers won't say soil. <laughs> I have too much respect for soil scientists. Um, <clears throat> is that a lot of them, once they actually get, you know, a soil analysis done or a nutrient solution analysis or start sticking something like the T12 in there, they start to realize that at different points in that uh, production cycle, their soil actually was hitting a fairly high EC. Um, you know, that was one of, that's one of the things we've noticed with, uh, you know, classic organic production versus uh, real basic, uh, you know, go back 15, 20 years in commercial type production where we were growing in like sunshine mix and using Technogrow 2020, 20, um, <laughs> a lot of those organic soils actually did have a very high EC at different points in time because of the degradation of their components. So 
ignorance is bliss a little bit when we're talking about EC and, you know, a living soil situation. But at, at the end of the day, you know, frequency, watering windows. Consistency is key. Excellent. Yes. Run, run the whole program too. Don't say I'm going to bulk for this week and then, ah, they're, ah, they don't look so good. I'm going to go back generative and like, no, you got to stick it, stick out the plan to really evaluate what worked. Oh, patience. So hard. All right. Got another question here. I'm going to, Dave submitted two questions, but the second one is he got, he had some data in here. So we're going to, we're going to go through it. So he is at week one flower. If I'm currently only able to dry back from about 15%, from the end of last irrigation the prior day to lights on the next day, and I'm trying to steer generatively, what should I do to get to the 25% dryback dry back mark? Wait for dryback and irrigate later and later each day and hope they eventually dry back quicker as they fill out. Currently irrigating two hours after lights on for a two-hour window. Veg was two weeks, one gallon cocoa bags. Ah, good. One gallon cocoa bags. There's, there's the key for us. Mm. Um, I mean, the first thing that I would evaluate is, uh, what, what is my plant size coming out of, uh, veg? Uh, am I, am I just getting into flower just a little bit early? Uh, 15% is probably not that it, bad. It it's, depends on what your field cap is. Yep. It, it, yeah. That's, I, I wouldn't get too worried about steering generatively with a 15% dryback. That being said, what's your EC doing? Do we, do we see that EC rising up pretty quickly before irrigation the next morning? That's kind of going to be the telltale for if the plant is feeling a more generative. Yeah. And irrigation. out front, generally, if I was, you know, not knowing what your field capacity is right off the bat, my rule of thumb, when, especially if I'm working with high water content cocoa, which a lot of our commercial customers use, you know, straight cocoa, no perlite, fairly fine chop. Before I start hitting P1s, let's say I've got a 60% field capacity, I'm looking for a minimum 15% overnight dryback to start initiating my P1s. So 15% is actually not that bad. You know, like I wouldn't worry so much about it. That next 10%, uh, if you flipped a plant that was too big for the pot, you're going to hit 25%, no problem. If you warm up the room a little bit, you'll probably hit 25%, no problem. So don't focus so much on like the total dryback number. Look at it more as like if I'm hitting less than 15 in generative and my plan is appropriately sized for my media, I need to look at my environment or my root zone or my overall environment or my root zone health. Like, do I have bad roots? Uh, do I not have enough roots? But that total dryback number is so variable depending on a bunch of different things that as long as we're seeing that amount, just write it out, you know? Your, your irrigation strategy sounds very on point to me. The you know first week flower is probably one of the most difficult to manage as far as irrigations go, just because uh, it's a big question mark on how much are these plants going to drink until we have some amount of established data in, um, in that environment, you know, that light intensity, that those VPDs, um, that root zone, depending on how much it's developed. Um, so just monitor quite a bit during the early stages of flower and, and make adjustments based on what you're seeing. Awesome. Dave, wherever you are, thank you so much for submitting that question and sharing your data with us. Just a reminder to everybody who's watching right now. Now you've got a few minutes left. Be sure to submit your live question if you want to get answers before we end the show. Um, but our good friend Bilbo is on with us today. You posted a comment, Bilbo, and some, a question. You want to go ahead and speak to it? Sure. A couple of things that I've been seeing. Oh, hi. A couple of things that I've been seeing over the past um, 13 harvest groups is a change in field capacity. And I'm wondering if other uh, soilless hybrid substrate cultivators are seeing anything similar. Um, I have some hunches, but I also wanted to back this question into you guys and see if you've seen or experienced that. Are you talking run to run or through the, the dynamics yeah. of a single uh, harvest? Through the dynamics of a single harvest. In cocoa? specifically um so it's basically like an amended peat that does contain you know a, an equal part of cocoa it's very very I, I would say it's like some sort of hybrid between an inert media and something that is somewhat biodynamic so one thing to look at there is uh really your pore space you know mm -hmm. how much pore space do you have if we've got a, 
perfect setup. We're going to end up with, you know, 20 to 30% pore space being air in a fully uh, saturated situation. So we want really good porosity in our media. That being said, throughout a harvest group from day one to the end, your roots are continually filling out that small pot. So this, this, uh, phenomenon, I'll call it where your field content goes down a little bit as your roots pack in all that pore space definitely exists. Um, we see it a lot actually in cocoa or peat based grows. Um, one thing I personally noticed is I see it happen a lot more in hard pots or plastic sided pots compared to the cloth pots, just because instead of that air pruning of the roots, they're starting to circle and take up more and more. And, you know, I, I think the best visual indicator you can get of this is if you've grown in like a one or a two gallon hard pot, you pull that root ball out at the end and you go like, well, where's the cocoa, man? Like this just, it's just all roots. Like I could pretty much eat off this ball of roots. Looks like spaghetti. Uh, that's exactly what happened. There's no more room for the water there because all the water can do is inhabit that pore space, take it up. There's once the pores are full, there's nowhere for the water to sit in. And you'll also notice that even if you're hand watering towards the end of the run, you get runoff like that compared to, you know, week two where you're just sitting there waiting for it to fill up that pore space. I like the, I like the hand watering gesture there. <laughs> yeah. You know, and, and one thing as well, um, that's just kind of a maintenance thing is it, it's good practice to clean your prongs on your substrate sensors. Um, you know, if, if you go from round around and round and, and let some salt get built up or, or other residuals on those prongs, sometimes your readings won't be um, as accurate as possible and you won't be able to see how much you actually are losing in field capacity. It might be a, a side effect of, uh, the you know, electrical measurement from prong to prong having to, to go through that, uh, that residual buildup on there. So, uh, they're very resistant to most types of cleaning products. My favorite is just wiping them down with isopropanol unless, um, unless it's really caked on. And then in which case you can uh, just leave the sensor head in, in a, a bucket. Don't put obviously the, the electronics and stuff in there, just the, the part with the prongs and the epoxy, um, you know, leave it in there for, for a short period of time and, and let that dissolve down. Yeah. Just keeping your probes clean is huge. And then another thing I do like to recognize, especially when you're, uh, uh, hand mixing, hand amending, hand potting is anytime you go ahead and transplant a new batch, especially if you've got a solace, go around and see what your baseline is. Um, and, e and even if you're not, you know, hand potting or hand mixing, um, you know, in the past, especially when COVID hit, the facility I worked at, we struggled to maintain a consistent cocoa supply. Uh, it's just, you know, supply chain shortages happened and we didn't know that was going to happen two months ahead of time. So suddenly we had to get a hold of any, any brand that had the size that we wanted basically. And what I found was brand to brand. I don't want to say quality varies wildly because I don't want to pick on any brand, but yes, quality varies wildly. But also within each brand batch to batch, I've noticed variation in chop quality and uh, water field capacity. Um, you know, it's really important to remember that these are fairly cheap horticultural products. Like we feel like we're getting, you know, probably overpaying here in the weed market, but there are people that grow tomatoes in cocoa pots as well. Um, so these are cheap products. There's not, you know, the, the quality tolerances at the manufacturing plants are not that great. You know, you've got people running a machine. Once the product falls wildly out of tolerance, they shut it down, reset the machine and start over. So until we want to pay like 10 bucks a pot, <laughs> I think we, we can expect a little variation and it's just good to give yourself an idea of what you're looking at and then adjust your, your tolerance ranges accordingly. Like that, that, there's nothing more disappointing than when I talk to someone and I've set up a recipe for them and then they switch cocoa brands and they're freaking out because they're consistently 10% lower than the water content guidelines I gave them. And then we look back and I go, whoa, chill out. Don't worry. Uh, this just, you never were going to hit that. You don't need to stress it. Yeah. And I actually kind of th thought of a term, you know, when we do crop registration, we're putting manual readings in about uh, our plants. Well, this would be like an initial substrate registration, if you will. Uh, obviously, the, the more samples that we take in a, any type of population, including the variation across substrates, the, the better idea that we get that our samples are specifically attributing the population well, right? And so if we go in there and uh, do 100 measurements with our solace, which you can now push directly to Arroyo using your Soilus, uh, or excuse me, your Solus app, um, get that in as a manual reading and it'd be plotted in there. Uh, you know, say you'll have a whole bunch of uh, 
um, samples that's going to represent a much bigger part of your population. And then you can see where your uh, where your installed sensors land in that uh, in that larger sample. You know, are the plants that I'm sampling or the substrates that I'm um, got Arroyo sensors in, are they closer to the top or the bottom of, of the group? And how big is that group? You know, am I seeing a plus or minus 5% uh, holding capacity on these substrates when I take a whole bunch of samples or is it much worse? Uh, and you can start to evaluate, do we want to deal with a, a, a process change or um, a procurement change that might be able to improve our outcome throughout the rest of the cycle? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think you nailed it there. Substrate registration. <laughs> Got a new thing to focus on. I love this conversation because it uh, we get a lot of questions around like recommended ranges and things like that. But like really the idea is to be doing kind of your own research in your own facility and setting up ranges and benchmarks that work for you, right? Oh, yeah. And honestly, I'll, I'll always go back to it. All these products we're using, you know, you're you're talking about something being made to be sold to a farmer. So it's really important to utilize all the tools you have at your disposal to make sure you're doing the best job that you can, because at the end of the day, any product you buy, and I'm not saying that companies don't like to support it, but it's still on you to produce the product. So it it really benefits you to do your homework and do the best job you can rather than just reading a really, because the other thing too, is like, if I was writing a set of instructions on how to use this substrate or fertilizer, I'm going to be as conservative as possible, right? Like I'm not going to write on a fertilizer label that you should crop steer on a certain schedule because I know that that's not, you know, one glove doesn't fit all. Yeah. That's kind of thinking about, uh, crop steering as a, as a term and a journey. And, you know, we, you know, we want to be the map. We can't tell you how much to turn the steering wheel when you get to North bend on your way to Seattle, but, but we can definitely give you the outline on, on how to drive. Mm-hmm. That's it. And then, uh, Bilbo, you dropped another comment. You want to, you want to ask that question or you want me to ask it for you? Uh, there was two. Yeah, go for it. Okay. The first one was just an observation. It's, does Arroyo use this instance of office hours live to learn internally about the industry? We certainly try. Yeah. That's no, <laughs> no, great for Jason and I. Directed to, to you, to the, to the hosts, the moderators and the rest of the people from Arroyo who come. I mean, I'm one of the moderators. I learned from every single episode of this show. Amazing. Every single one. Uh, we're constantly learning. Every interaction, every interview, every yeah. chat. We learn yeah. from mm-hmm. you. We learn from anybody who asks a question. And of course, we learn from Seth and Jason and anybody who comes on. Very educational. It's amazing. I have never, I know more about crop steering than I have ever known in my whole life. Yeah. And I don't relate to anyone anymore. So <laughs> just these guys. So we can tell by your memes. <laughs> my, my friends wow. are, yeah. My friends are like, what is she doing now? <laughs> Growers know though. Do you want to ask your uh, field capacity yeah. question? Uh, I did. Yeah. I you already covered that oh, one. We're all good. All right. Yes. That's right. And Mikey just wrote, that's why I'm here uh, when I can be exactly like it's all educational. So thrilled to be here. All right, Mandy, I think we got another live question from YouTube. Yeah. Oh my gosh, you guys. Thank you for sending in your questions. Hoffman's Choice wrote in, so you at Arroyo work with smaller quote sizes or only large purchases. I'm interested in buying two to four Terras 12s to replace my accurate $100 volumetric water content sensors. Are there any caveats to integrating these sensors in a DIY system? We don't typically support a DIY system. That being said, um, there is no bottom end on how small an Arroyo system can be. Uh, the biggest thing I will say right now is that when you go to purchase the system, if you want to do it, the sooner the better, because every time we have a huge commercial client buy something, that takes up some manufacturing capability and can help you know start to push out some order times. So I encourage anyone that wants it to book a demo and talk to our salespeople. They're incredibly adaptable at finding a solution that's going to fit your grow of, I mean, shoot, I think the smallest one we've had is under 400 square feet and the biggest is hundreds of thousands, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Hoffman's uh, choice. If you uh, would like to just go ahead and uh, email us directly sales.arroya at metergroup.com. Yeah. Or uh, you can go to our site and book a demo right away. 
Um, I believe that's all the questions that we have around YouTube for right now. And we're actually getting close to the end of the hour. So Keisha, I'll pass it back to you. Thank you, Andy. Yep. It's not too late. Oh, look at this question from Mikey here. Look at that. Uh, Mikey wants to know, can we expect the Atmos to join the Solas family? Um, Mikey, let's talk about that offline. I might have some good options <laughs> yeah. for you. Um, but currently we don't have any, any plans to, to implement that function. I don't think it would be a, a, a huge ask for the, the actual implementation of it. Um, but, uh, but yeah, chat, chat with me later and, and let's catch up on, on some possibilities to, to solve your challenge there. I love that. Shout out to our teammate, Rachel, who wrote in feature requests. So yes, thank you for that question, Mikey. All right. Um, yeah, we're, we're winding out the hour here. So not too late to ask some live questions, but you only got a few minutes, folks. Um, I'm going to ask this question because we're kind of on this. We've been on this topic and I, I've been dying to say this dude's handle. Mr. Loudass wrote in, he has a Terrace 12 and he wrote, I've been trying to dial in my drybacks. Is the Terrace 12 compatible with Trollmaster software? What is it compatible with? so that I can use it with the graphs to dial in drybacks. And they're looking for any other products on the market. So let's talk about that. I think a few weeks ago, we did give an overview of how to use the Solus, but let's talk about that compatibility aspect. Yeah. And so I work with quite a few integrations right now. Uh, I've got a lot of larger clients that are implementing our open API, which is the best way to get information out of the Arroyo system. Uh, it's just a, a restful API. If anyone's done implementations of, uh, of call functions, then it's really pretty easy. I actually had never done any until, uh, I stayed up too late one night and got it working just fine. So there's, uh, there's really not a big barrier to entry as far as utilizing our, our API. And that's going to provide the last, uh, about almost 500 data points from any data type of any sensor that's in your facility. We, we should mention though, that API still does require your ROIA subscription. Yes. So porting the data out is fine. Um, part of the reason we don't, uh, I mean, it is an SDI 12 sensor. You can do a lot of different things with it, but going through the Arroyo system does guarantee that your data logger, your transmitter, everything actually will work with the T12. Um, you know, really like to expand upon the fact that it was developed, you know, in-house, uh, it is used in other applications and in different industries, but you can also blow them up. When you're trying to figure out how to use them on individual integrations, you can end up with a bad calibration. There's a lot of reasons to really go with uh, the Arroyo platform to support your T12s. That's it. Yep. I'm going to drop in the in the chat in just a minute. It'll lead to our uh, demo if anybody would like to check that out. Um, and in the last few minutes, I think we have time for a couple more questions. Um Nox Tromox wrote in, what PPF do you recommend in stretch time? I mean, obviously, without a lot of factors, we're talking about the, you know, some of the, the you know, stretch being generative. Um, Let's just start here. Do you have CO2 supplementation? Yeah, that's <laughs> And what kind of lights do you have? Because really, you know, it, we always want to be PPFD plus 250 as a general rule. Um, if you live in an area, especially like you're not somewhere super urban, you've got maybe 400 PPM of ambient CO2 in the air. Even with you in that room breathing real hard, it's still not <laughs> getting super high. Um, that's an absolute limitation. You cannot crank your PPFD up without that CO2 supplementation. For prime production, we typically recommend over 1,000. Uh, that's where we see a lot of the big increases and over a thousand, a thousand to 1300 to even to 1500 is where you get that better, deeper canopy penetration and bigger overall bud structure because we're supplying enough energy to the plant to actually build that structure. Yeah. You know, I think last week we were talking about talking about balancing inputs other than otherwise we're just, we're just throwing out <clears throat> supplies and, and money. Uh, and so that's where, obviously when we talk about water plus CO2 catalyzed by light, if we can start by optimizing how those three are, are, um, are utilized to a hundred percent of their input capacity, then obviously we're not wasting light. We're not wasting CO2 and, um, water is probably a little bit more complex in there because obviously when we talk about crop steering, we're modulating that a little bit. So, well, and I think a good way you can really envision it. I, uh, every once in a while I'll watch some, you know, classic stoner movies. I watched uh, part of how high the other day and the weed he was pulling out was just such small, delicate nugs. And I was like, 
Oh yeah. Back then, you know, we were talking about the 600 watt lights, 600 watt HPS was pretty standard for everyone's basement. And we didn't have the P most of them didn't have the PPFD or the CO2 supplementation to really blow up some of those strains and see the kind of performance that we see today. And even though a lot of them are some of the same genetics still around propagated. Um, so I, I like to think about that. It's kind of funny to look back historically or, uh, look up some high times articles from like 1998 or 2001 and just, just look at the cannabinoid contents and the pictures of the buds, especially if it's like in someone's hand or there's another size reference. Cause uh, you know, people have been growing great cannabis for a long time, but more people are doing a good job at growing good cannabis than ever before. Here, I got a question for you, Seth. What was the PPFD of that brick weed that I bought when I was 19? <laughs> Well, it depends on how cloudy it was <laughs> that summer. <laughs> um, Seth, it's so funny you mentioned that. I was watching that movie Savages a couple of weeks ago, and the focus was on like this premium cannabis that was 30% THC. <laughs> right. It was like mythical back when that movie it was came mythical. out. <laughs> yeah. They're like, yes, this would make you incredibly rich. All this violence happened because of this. <laughs> Amazing. All right. Well, I think we are at the end of the show. Mandy, got anything else from YouTube before we go? Um, I think that's it over on YouTube. Thank you guys for your questions. Uh, Another great show. Such a good show. Seth and Jason rocking it as always. Anything else you want to say before we wrap it up? Have a great day. I got to yep. give Jacob Nelson a shout out over at North Country Farms. This is a dope hat. <laughs> it's really cool. Thanks. Bud. It, is, it is dope. And a lot of us like hats around here. FYI. So yeah, they produce some killer bud too. If you're in California, oh. check it out. Oh, okay. Well, I'll, I'll check that out. Excellent. <laughs> awesome. Thank you, Jason and Seth, as always for another great conversation. And Mandy, I love doing this with you. Thank you for being my co-moderator. Thank you all for joining us for this week's Office Hours Live. We do this every Thursday. And the best way to get answers from the experts is to join us live. Want to learn about more about Arroyo? We dropped a link in the chat so you can book a demo with one of our experts and they'll be able to tell you all about how Arroyo can be used to improve your cultivation production process. But as always, if there's any topic you'd like cover in a future episode, Episode of Office Hours, please let us know. Post questions in the chat anytime. Uh, post uh, questions anytime in the Arroyo app. Feel free to drop uh, us an email at support.arroyo at metergroup.com. Send us a DM over Instagram, LinkedIn, social. We are on social club. We're everywhere. Uh, we record every session. We'll email everyone in attendance a link to today's show. It'll also be on the Arroyo YouTube channel. Like, subscribe, and share while you're there. And if you like these conversations, please do spread the word. Thanks, everybody. We'll see you next time. Bye. Office Hours Live is brought to you by Arroya, the ultimate cultivation platform. Unlock the power of crop steering through our state-of-the-art sensors and software. Repeat successful runs and scale faster than ever before. Schedule a demo today at arroya.io.